one to two percent of the time, you'll get a defensive bear, bears that are concerned about the tripods. They think they look threatening, and they'll uh, charge you know, charge the station. In that case, I just basically get the sound of a rushing noise of an animal moving very quickly towards the station, and then the microphone cable gets disconnected, and that's it. Hi, everyone. Steve Shepard here, host of the Natural Curiosity Project. Glad to have you back. You've heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again. The best part about hosting this program is the opportunity to meet people like the guy I'm about to introduce you to. David Bechkel is the senior bioacoustician at Denali National Park in Alaska. I ran across his name in an article about the scientific value of natural soundscapes, and his work sounded so interesting that I decided to reach out to him, and he kindly agreed to an interview. In fact, we talked for so long about so many different things that this is the first of a two-part series with David as my guest. This first episode is about his life as a bioacoustician. You're going to love his story. The second part is more philosophical in nature. I'll leave it at that. Let me introduce David. He's a biologist with the National Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. And as I said, he's based in Denali National Park. It's a very uh, mysterious, vast landscape. It's full of all different types of elevations from our lowlands at 500 feet above sea level, muskeg and boreal forest and, and wetlands as far as you can possibly see, all the way up uh, through the mountains, uh, in the areas where the bears and caribou and things like that live, and then uh, ascending up above into the snow and ice permanent winter year-round and the peak of Denali up above 20,000 feet. But he's not alone. I want to just take a moment, too, to just recognize that, you know, I'm not alone in this pursuit. You know, my work for the National Park Service, part of a really fun and very knowledgeable creative team. So the Natural Sounds Night Skies Division is certainly not just me. There's other folks who do this sort of field type work. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I really appreciate that part of our team. It's exciting for all of us to be part of advancing in, you know, sort of bettering the state of science. I think it's fair to say. So David works in one of the most remote and beautiful places on earth, studying, among other things, the role of sound to help us develop a better sense of the health of a natural place. Bioacoustics is a blend of just an ecologist, somebody who studies natural landscapes and the processes of the natural world. And then you kind of have an overlay on that. The way that you're studying the natural world is through sound. And, uh, you know, what may be important about that is that historically, the information wasn't really considered to come from sound. And people kind of thought of it as a purely intangible emotional phenomena. And for a long time, because of that, it was fairly stunted in terms of uh, human exploration into what things we could learn from sounds. And I, I guess that, that's kind of one of the exciting things about bioacoustics. We're just beginning to sort of tap into what you can really learn and the information that you can glean from sounds about the natural world. You know, people have been observing and looking at animals for a long time. They know a lot about the habitats they live in, their life history. But things like, when do anim the timing of these events occur? And especially in light of things like climate change, where the timing of events is changing. So I asked David to tell us what a typical day in the field is like for him. You can imagine one of the main challenges in Alaska is actually getting someplace. And so I do a lot of walking. I will put these recorders in a backpack and we'll walk for a couple of days and get to some spot. 
And occasionally we'll do other types of uh, non-motorized sort of approaches. We'll float in these little boats called pack rafts and we'll float somewhere. Or we might uh, end up using skis or dog sleds in the wintertime, which is quite fun. Uh, there's almost no form of locomotion like a dog sled. It's fantastic. Getting there is a big part of the, the puzzle for me. And how long does he stay out there? That's actually an interesting thing. Unlike some scientific fields, like a botanist might spend quite a bit of time on a plot. They might go through and they might study a transect or a bunch of different things. They might make some soil measurements, uh, all sorts of things on a plot. Because there's so much information contained in audio, I can put out a station and essentially set it up, hit record, and me being there is usually just adding you know, errors and artifacts into my data. I'm, I'm messing up the data, so I just walk away, turn it on, hit rec- recalibrate it, and set the clocks and things like that, and then I walk away, and, and nature happens, you know. <laughs> and then a month later, I come back and I pick it up. And in the meantime, I spend quite a bit of time actually um, working on, you know, what to do with it. So let's be clear. David packs up his recorders and one way or another makes his way into the extreme backcountry of Denali or whatever park he's working in. He then turns them on, sets them up, hits record, and walks away for a month, during which time the recorders run 24 hours a day. As you might imagine, uh, audio takes up a lot as big file size, and so we need to come back and collect the data about once a month and fill up a a 32-gigabyte SD card in a month. And for any audio recorders who are listening to this, I mean, immediately the what they jump would jump to is that 32 gigabytes for a month of audio is actually quite small, <laughs> you know. So we're not recording in a, a lossless format. We're not recording high-resolution audio. Um, we're recording just very simple, low-quality MP3. But the nice part about that is you can record for continuously for a whole month. And we do get a lot of extra noise because of that and things like this, but you still get, uh, you know, a lot of really great information out of that recording. Yeah, even at low resolution, David gets lucky when nature performs for his recorders. One thing that I wanted to know has probably already occurred to you. How do you listen to a month of recordings from 15 recording sites? That's 15 months of recording. You know, a lot of people will think, well, how can you possibly listen to this? Do you, you know, if I put 15 sites out like I'm going to this summer, well, you don't even have enough months in the year to listen to 15 months of audio. <laughs> so we actually, I end up using my eyes a lot. I look at a picture of sound called a spectrogram. And, uh, you know, it's sort of on the horizontal axis time, and on the uh, vertical axis it would be frequency, so from really low pitches to really high pitches. Um, and then how loud it is is uh, how bright it is. Um, but, yeah, anyways, you can go through that really quickly. And it's a bit like reading sheet music, so how people might have analyzed uh, music. You can also analyze sound. I mean, the staff only has however many values on it, very few actually, maybe a couple dozen different note values. A spectrogram has probably a, a few hundred. So uh, that lets you 
have a lot better frequency resolution instead of all the pit note, pitch notes. Uh, and then uh, also the time resolution is really good, uh, especially for looking at audio, you're talking about thousands and thousands of measurements a second. Now, as you can imagine, the work that David does is hard on the equipment as well. One thing that we struggle with is that there really isn't a recorder or tool that exists to do the type of, you know, ecological acoustics that we want to do. There's no recorder on the market right now which can simultaneously capture ambient and also record for a long time and run on a limited amount of power and it has a ton of uh, storage for media and, you know, it's hardy to the elements. There almost, there's nothing that exists. My recorders are just temporary installations. Like you might imagine, these sort of, uh, with an omnidirectional microphone, the things that happen within the vicinity of a microphone are running water, lots of kind of just little sounds of birds or things moving around, not much going on, but then every once in a while there's a very uncommon event. A doll sheep walks right up to it and bleats. Uh, you know, a small animal scratches the case, and I don't even know what it is, but it's sitting there kind of scratching and tapping at the case. And, or an avalanche uh, sets loose on the far side of the valley. recording to be just packed with events. Sometimes, you know, the random events that uh, make sounds are also the random events that take out my equipment. So, you know, uh, we've had some pretty amazing situations like on the toe of the Yetna Glacier. Glaciers kick out an enormous amount of material, big rocks, and uh, they're coming out of the glacier. Uh, The water is coming out with quite a bit of force, and so it moves quite large rocks, and they they eventually uh, settle, and the river fills up with gravel, and it jumps courses. And so we had a station that was at the toe of the end of the glacier, and the river changed. It moved uh, more than 200 meters and it carved out a six-foot embankment, which the solar panels of my equipment were hanging down into the water. Uh, so one of those amazing sort of events that you just had no idea that that was going to happen in the month uh, between when you were there. Okay, David, you've trekked into the bush, put out your recorders, and captured a month of sound from the far reaches of Denali. You then go back, collect them, and bring them back to your office. Now what? What do you actually do with all that data? When I get a record back from the field... As you might imagine, you know, sound as a fundamental sense sort of connects to lots of different uh, types of uh, information. So some of them are very human in nature. They're about our behaviors and things that we do that impact parks. And so I'll go through and I'll look for human behavior. I'll say, okay, well, here's a lot of, uh, I'll look through the spectrograms and I'll annotate all sorts of human noise. Say, all right, here's approximately what our footprint on the land is right here. And this place for, and then, I'll, then sort of a different part of what I do with the data is I go back and I look for the natural parts. So uh, what, what is uh, the animals I can hear here? You know, um, what kind of species richness might there be in this area? Things like that. We can do those sorts of analyses with the same audio record. 
And then the third part that I think a lot of people don't think about, but I spend rather quite a lot of time thinking about, is how much energy is present in this environment. And so that's sort of more in the realm of something like physical ecology, where you're talking about, you know, people in, for years and years have been talking about coastlines, talk about an energetic coastline, rocky, big waves, you know, lots of energy, uh, and, a, and more of a quiescent environment, like a, a protected harbor or, or um, coastline. So that's sort of analogous to what I'm looking for in sound, where there's, you know, I'm, I'm documenting what we call background ambience, like a lot of energy from flowing water, or it's a high alpine, windy environment. It's an energetic natural environment versus lowlands where the boreal forest is and the muskeg and the rivers are slow and winding and they just, you can't hear them. You know, you can stand a few meters away and you don't hear them. And uh, those environments are very naturally quiescent. And so I also, it changes how far away you can hear and, you know, all these things that are important about, uh, you know, acoustic environments. To wrap up this part of my interview with David Betchkel, I asked him this question. Why does the work that you do in Denali matter? In terms of a park and a place, you think about these vast landscapes in Alaska. They're very rich in a sort of a, a natural and cultural heritage in this place, right? And many parks like this across the whole country, we have a heritage of quietude. It's, some of these parks are some of the last places you can go and really experience long, extended periods of natural quiet. And... Uh, that's a thing that the Park Service is um, challenged. Our mission is to uh, provide that experience for people to enjoy for a um, long, long time into the future. We're in the, a long game, and that's pretty rare, actually, uh, is to be uh, sort of uh, presenting and protecting these experiences for all time. It's a pretty lofty goal, but the best part about my job, perhaps, is going out there and the measurements I make are helping rivet down an actual observation, you know, and so a lot of my work actually ends up working with people who are doing great things, great projects that help make parks great places, and also then to minimize the kind of impacts that they have on these resources. That's, that's essentially my work, you know. And speaking for everyone out there who enjoys the sounds of the natural world and ensuring that they'll be there for our grandkids and their grandkids to enjoy, we're glad you're there, David. In the second half of our interview, we'll dig a bit deeper into the collision point between natural sound and human noise and the efforts being made to protect one while minimizing the other. Thanks for listening. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you, David, for speaking with us. We'll chat with you again in the next episode. And now I leave you with this, one of David's recordings of a dawn chorus in Denali, complete with a beaver tail slap.